namo bhagavate vasudevaya Om namo bhagavate vasudevaya Om namo bhagavate vasudevaya so it's November 24th, 2021, class in Hilo, Hawaii, and I'm actually in Hilo, Hawaii, and this is from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 29, talks between Narada and King Prachinabarhi, where Narada is explaining all of his allegory, and this is text 12 and 13. Apano Vyavaha Apano Vyavaha Utaro Deva Husmita Apanaha named Apana Vyavaharaha Business of the tongue Atra here Chitram of all varieties. Andaha, eatables, Bahudanam, name Bahudana, Pitrihu, name Pitrihu, Dakshinaha, right. Karnaha, ear, Uttaraha, left, Devahu, Devahu, Smithaha, is called, muted, unmuted. Translation by Srila Prabhupada. The city named Apana represents engagement of the tongue in speech, and Bahudana is the variety of foodstuffs. The right ear is called the gate of Pitruhu, and the left ear is called the de- gate of Devahu. Okay, there's no purport, and I've been asked to speak on text 13. Pravitram cha navitram cha shastram panchala samgnitam pitriryana devayanam Stotrat Chutra Dharad Vrajet. Srila Prabhupada's translation. The city spoken of as Dakshina Panchala represents the scriptures meant for directing pravriti, the process of sense enjoyment in fruitive activities. The other city, named Uttara Panchala, represents the scriptures meant for decreasing fruitive activities and increasing knowledge. The living entity receives different kinds of knowledge by means of two ears, and some living entities are promoted to Pitraloka and some to Devaloka. All this is made possible by the two ears. Srila Prabhupada's purport. The Vedas are known as Shruti, and the knowledge received from them through oral reception is called Shruti Dhara. As stated in Bhagavad Gita, one can be promoted to the planets of the demigods or to the planets of the Pitas, forefathers, or even to the Vaikuntha planets, simply through the process of hearing. These things have already been explained in the previous chapters. Pavitram cha, pavitrim cha, shastram panchala samgnitam, pitcher jnanam devayanam, stotrach chutra darad vrajet. Muni continued, the city spoken of as Dakshina Panchala, represents the scriptures meant for directing pravritri, the process of sense enjoyment in fruit of activities. The other city, named Uttara Panchala, represents the scriptures meant for decreasing fruit of activities and increasing knowledge. The living entity receives different kinds of knowledge by means of two ears, 
and some living entities are promoted to Pitraloka and some to Devaloka. All this is made possible by the two ears. So here Srila Prabhupada saying that where we go can be simply a matter of what we hear about. What we hear about. What we hear about. So how is this? So we look at the Bhagavad Gita at uh, 262 to 63 and there Krishna is explaining how we become entangled. I think that all of us as conditioned souls, as some of you are not a conditioned soul, then please excuse me. Then we'll talk about this just for the sake of preaching to other conditioned souls. But all conditioned souls have experience, and if we are conditioned souls, we have this experience, of getting our intelligence bewildered. We see it in ourselves, we see it in other people, we do things, we say things that cause us harm. We are are not acting in our own best self-interest. And in fact, Arjuna asked this in chapter 3. Why do we do things against our own self-interest? It appears almost that we're being forced to. We feel as if some outside force. And you see is this concept is there in many traditions of the world, the concept of the Satan. I was hearing an early lecture of Srila Prabhupada's where he was calling him Satan. <laughs> so this concept of a Satan, of a devil, uh, evil beings that push us to do things that are not in our best interest, that we regret. We, we lose our intelligence, we lose our memory. We all have situations where we know what's right, and then we, it's like we just forget. We, we just forget what's right, we forget what's wrong, and we do things, oh, why did I do that? And it can be as small of a thing as being rude and nasty to someone you love. It can be as big of a thing as having some illicit affair or stealing something or, you know, huge things like killing someone. You know, half of all murders are between intimate family members and most of those are between romantic or ex-romantic partners. And many times the person, they kill their partner and then uh, immediately they regret it and they kill themselves. So it can be that extreme of a thing. Or it can just be as, you know, a small thing, you eat an extra piece of cake So where does all that start? Where does this bewilderment start? That we end up at the wrong destination. We end up at the... How did I get here? Why am I having a fight with this person? Why am I arguing with this person that I don't want to argue with? Why am I eating this thing I don't want to eat? Right? Why did I do this that I didn't want to do? And it all starts with contemplation. And contemplation is coming from hearing Now, we can say contemplation comes from seeing, but it's not only seeing. You know, you might see an attractive member of the opposite sex, or you might see, you know, a new pair of shoes or a new watch or something that you want or whatever. But it it really comes from the thoughts that are, let's say contemplation. It comes from the thoughts that are associated with what we see or what we touch or what we come in contact with. And those thoughts are kind of hearing. They're hearing in our own mind. And what we hear in our own mind is directly related to what we hear in general. There's a lot of uh, evidence that like if you have a lot of friends who are overweight, you're more likely to be overweight. If you have a lot of friends who smoke, you're more likely to smoke. If you have a lot of friends who divorce, you're more likely to divorce. I mean, this is, it's a sociological fact. So, why is that? You know, we get the impression that it's okay, it's socially acceptable. It's an option. I was just reading that whenever there is a publicized suicide, like front page page news suicide, that suicides and apparent accidents that are fatal go up in similar members of the of the population. So you know, if some forty year old man 
very publicized that he committed suicide, then, you know, 35 to 55-year-old men will commit more suicides in the area where it's publicized. And not only more suicides, there'll be uh, more single-plane accidents, there'll be more single-car accidents. Why? People hear about something. And it sets up a kind of contemplation, and it sets up a domino effect. And of course, this works with good things as well. You know, we talked about bad things, but it also works with good things. You know, if all your friends and all your associates are getting a higher education and having high status jobs in society, you're likely to do that too. If the people around you are kind to their children, you're likely to be kind to your children too. It's what you hear about. It's, it's what one's taking into one's environment as this is right. And of course, such is the power today that we hear extensively, not just in our own community, but we hear extensively about the world. And at this point, you know, we can hear so many divergent (laughs) uh, things, right? So what happens is that our thoughts produce desires, the desires produce actions, the actions produce destinations. There's a famous Christian preacher, Andy Stanley, that talks about the path. He says, you're going to get someplace according to what path you're on, not according to your intentions or your stated ideals. Where you're going to get is dependent on what path you're on, and that's all. It's, it's a very simple thing. It's a, it's a simple thing when it comes to a road trip or a plane trip. You know, uh, when I flew here, I, I took three different planes to get here, and on, I think it was the second plane, as we're getting ready to take off, the pilot makes an announcement, flight attendants get ready for arrival. And I thought, wait a minute, we're not arriving, we're departing. <laughs> you know? I, I've been on a lot of planes where they make an announcement, you know, this flight is going to such and such place. If that's not where you want to go, you need to get off the plane. There was a story in the, in the news some years ago about a travel agent that booked a ticket for a customer to the wrong place, a place that had a similar name. And uh, the, the passenger didn't notice and so ended up in, in a completely different country. Right? When, one time when I was in St. Petersburg, I was trying to go to Moscow, and I had a handwritten in Russian boarding pass. Uh, I couldn't read it. And all the announcements were in Russian. They were, no, they were not translating into English. And then my flight was delayed, and I really didn't know where to go. Nobody was telling me where to go. When I, when I got, finally got on a plane, I really didn't know, is this plane going to go to Moscow or not? Where, where am I going to end up. So we end up at the, I didn't end up in Moscow, it, where we end up is, is what path we're on, what plane we're on, what, what road we're on. And that's uh, dependent, interestingly enough, on what we hear. What we hear and what attracts us. Now, we hear something and we're attracted to it, we're drawn to it. Yes, that's what I want. Uh, we do the contemplation and then we become attached to it. And again, it's not just the other senses without hearing, without some sort of information about it that captivates us. Then we don't go down that road. So this this thing that entangles us can also liberate us. Just like Narada Muni says, does not a thing when applied therapeutically cure a disease that is caused by that very same thing. And in one sense, we could really look at it the opposite way. You know, hearing about material things entangles us in this world and it entangles us in a way that we personally regret. And we could say you could take that same hearing process and use it for spiritual purposes. But saying it like that, which is certainly accurate, might imply that the entanglement process is the original process. And that you're just taking an entanglement process and using it for a good purpose. Well, the reality is the opposite. The reality is that the original process of hearing, desiring, action, and destination 
is a spiritual process. And it has become perverted into a material process. And what we're really trying to do is we're really trying to return to the original process, to use this hearing, contemplating, attraction, and action for what it was originally meant for. I mean, why, why not? I mean, th- this, this basic thing that all of us experience of getting attracted to something because of thinking about it and hearing about it, and therefore behaving certain ways and then ending up at a certain place. And when we end up at that place, we're like, did I really want to be at this place or not? And, and often the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. But I don't think any of us can consistently say, yes, everything I've been attracted to and every path I went down led me to a place that I was happy with. So at first what we do, and this is really interesting, this is really interesting and explained very nicely in the third canto by Lord Kapiladev. It's also explained in the eleventh canto by Krishna to Uddhava. Is that if you want to make fire, of course we have matches and lighters, but the old system was that you created friction like with two pieces of wood. I'm uh, right now in the ninth canto in the story of Perurava. And Perurava actually inaugurated the process of yagya at the beginning of Treta Yuga. And it's funny, although ostensibly he was doing the yagya for Vishnu, actually he was doing the yagya to be with Urvasi. And that's also interesting that uh, it's not just your actions. It's certainly not just your intentions. If we have good intentions and we perform bad actions, we don't get to our destination. But the universe is also subtle, so it's not just actions, it's also intentions. So if you're doing spiritual actions, but your intentions are mundane, you don't get to a spiritual destination either. Like Pururava, he was doing a spiritual action of a yagya for Vishnu, but his intentions were his... Uh, sexual relationship with Urvasi. That was his intentions. And so he went to the planet of Urvasi. You know, which reminded me a lot of the story of Bharat Maharaj, where he's, you know, chanting his Gayatri, his sun mantra, but he's meditating on a deer. So it isn't just the actions, it's also the intentions. We go on a path uh, physically and we go on a path mentally. I mean, the story that I, I always find astonishing, I bring it up quite a bit, is with Raghunath Bhatta Goswami when he was going to join Mahaprabhu and this uh, devotee, well, person, Ramdas Vilas, I think his name was, Ramdas something. Anyway, he ended up joining Raghunath Bhatta on the journey and he was carrying Raghunath Bhatta's bags for him. And he was chanting, Ram, 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 constantly. But his intention was to become the Lord. His intention was to merge with God. His intention was not service. And therefore, when he got... His intention wasn't even veneration, like in in, uh, neutral love of God. His intention wasn't either service or veneration. His intention was merging. And therefore, when he came to Jagannath Puri, Lord Chaitanya didn't pay any attention to him. So even though his actions were really incredible, his actions of chanting, his actions of serving great Vaishnavas, what a Vaishnava, one of the six Goswamis he was serving, because his intention was not right. Therefore, he wasn't really on the path he appeared to be going on due to his behavior. So both behavior and intentions. So anyway, that Purva would rub these two Arani wood together and he created fire. So it used to be that the way we started a fire was to rub pieces of wood together. And Krishna explains to Uddhava that the process of hearing, the process of invoking the transcendent desire through sound vibration is compared to starting a fire by rubbing two pieces of wood together. So first there's smoke, and eventually there's a spark, and then you pour ghee on the spark, and then there's a blazing fire, and then the wood itself becomes burned. Now, materially, when the wood itself becomes burned, the fire is also extinguished. But... So therefore the analogy breaks down at that point because in the spiritual process of hearing when the wood is burned uh, the fire of the burning wood has become hot enough 
to light the real fire of the soul, to light the real desire of the soul. The wood is compared to the body and the senses. So first what one does is one uses the materially perverted process for spiritual subject matter. So one is still on the material platform, therefore we say one is a prakriti bhakta. Prakriti means matter. One's a materialistic devotee. And of course, you know, we tend to label anyone we don't like or anyone we disagree with as a materialistic devotee. But basically, a materialistic devotee is someone who's still primarily identifying with matter, still primarily identifying with this body and mind. Their desires are still primarily materialistic, and they're using that material identity, and they're using that material uh, things that they see as material. They're perceiving them as material. They're not perceiving them as connected with Krishna, but they're trying to connect them with Krishna. So one is then hearing materially. It's a material process in one sense. Therefore, one is called a prakrita bhakta. And one is hearing about the Lord. And one is often putting a lot of mundane conceptions over one's hearing. One is, is filtering what one's hearing through one's material conceptions. They, it's a very... Um, the process is impure. Just like Lord Kapiladev says, one can perform bhakti in the mode of ignorance, in the mode of passion, in the mode of goodness. So the prakriti bhakti is performing bhakti through this filter of one of the modes or some combination of the modes of nature. And therefore, as Krishna says to Uddhava, the first result is just smoke. You know, it's, it's it, a little bit of heat. You get a little bit of heat. But it's not, uh, it's not that effective if you stop there. And... This problem is the reason why in most of the world's religions people don't get very purified because they don't go beyond that point. They don't go beyond being a materialistic devotee where their hearing is covered by the modes of nature and they're filtering what they're hearing through their material identity and through their modes of nature. And so we, this is why, one of the big reasons why religion has such a bad reputation and why people become so anti-religious. Because they see, well, someone takes up religion and then they just cover their false ego with their, you know, with the veil of religion. They just justify their pride, they justify their violence, they justify their, you know, whatever, <laughs> um, through religion. And it's, it's, it's smoke. It's just there's a little, there's a little bit of heat uh, here and there. And just like Vishnu Chakravati Thakur, Madhuri Kanambani, you know, in the very beginning, Adushrata, there's, there's not really any Anartha Nivriti going on. And at Sadhu Sangha, there's a tiny, tiny, tiny bit. You know, when you start, when you're at unsteady Bhajana Kriya, also, you know, unsteady also means of the mind, of the intention. So one's hearing, but one's intention is to impress everybody else with how well you're hearing, or to convince yourself that you're a righteous religious person, or because you think if you're a religious person, then you're going to have a happier life, you're going to get more money, you're going to get more prestige. You know, it's, the intention is off. And so the purification is minimal. The wonderful thing, however, is if a person is dedicated, and if a person persists, then the process of anartha nivritti really starts. The heat increases to the point that there's a spark that happens. Now, this process of anartha nivritti is... It's the thing that nobody really wants. I mean, we say we want. We say, I want to become purified. You know, I want to be free of my inartas. I want to give up my false ego. But when we're faced with situations where that's necessary, we often resist the process intensely. You know, and we can see this kind of thing in other parts of our life. Right, so about a year and a half ago, I injured my arm, and I regularly go see a physical therapist for treatment. And part of the treatment she gives me is where they poke a needle into the muscles that have 
formed into a knot to try to break up the knots at the trigger points. And the, the actual experience of it is quite painful. But if I want the treatment to be effective, tensing, the, tensing up against the treatment actually makes it less effective, whereas if I can cooperate with the treatment and relax into the treatment, it will be more effective. Or we've all had the experience of you know, taking a splinter out of our fingers. We want the splinter out, the splinter is, is hurting. But the process of taking it out is painful. Right? The Bhagavatam uses this example, taking out a thorn with a thorn. So although we want the splinter removed, uh, we may fight the process. You know, you'll see some children, they'll, they'll, no, 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 don't take it out, don't take it out, don't take it out. So in spiritual life also, when this process of hearing starts to reveal to us our own anartas and starts to shift our desires, the false ego may resist this like crazy. And we, we can have this inner battle where, you know, in, you, you see this with people, it's very easy to see in other people, and of course we may understand it in ourselves, where a person, they're chanting, they're doing service, they're praying, please can I achieve love of God, please can I achieve purification. And then when they, their mind goes to hearing and contemplating things in Tamagun and Rajagun or maybe Sattvagun, they get completely wrapped up in that completely wrapped up in it. And if you say to them, look, this is this is just Tamagun. This is just Rajagun. Ah! <laughs> you know, and they really want to hold on to this. And again, we may be able to see this kind of thing in ourselves as well. But if we're willing to let go, if we're willing to cooperate with the hearing, there's a shift that happens in the process of devotional service. As Krishna says to Uddhava, there's a spark. You know, we, we call this often, well, I had a realization, an epiphany. You know, we, a spark comes. I, I remember once speaking to a devotee who was very disturbed was many, many years ago in Europe. He was really, really disturbed about something. And... While I was talking to him, all of a sudden you, you could see in his face, it was like the sun had come out from behind a cloud, like you'd open dark curtains in a room. And he could just see, oh, this problem is due to my attachment, and I'm attached to something that's hurting me. And that lasted maybe for a minute, and then it's like he closed the curtains again. No, I don't want to see that. So the spark that happens is that hearing about Krishna and hearing about the devotees, hearing about the philosophy. This morning I was, <laughs> I was hearing Srila Prabhupada talk about chanting Hare Krishna, speaking philosophy about Krishna, speaking about Krishna's pastimes. It's all uh, it in the category of hearing and chanting, that Krishna is personally present. It starts waking up the soul, jīv-jāgo, jīv-jāgo. The soul starts to wake up and go, oh, yes. That's the real me. That's what I really want. You know, we talk about authenticity in relationships. That's what I really want. The soul, the soul starts waking up. And when the soul starts waking up, then the process switches. Because if that waking up of the soul is nourished. As Krishna says, when there's a spark, you pour ghee. Now, if you're trying to make a fire, any of us who've tried to make a fire outside with wood and things like that, you know, you know, you often get this little spark that fizzles out. Right? I, I've made so many, so many fires outdoors and, and it, it can be so frustrating. You know, it just fizzles out. You get a few sticks to be on fire, a few leaves, a few pieces of paper, and it doesn't, like, catch. And then you light it again, and you'll get a few sparks, and a few maybe even little flames, but it doesn't catch. In order to catch, you pour ghee. I mean, what is ghee, if we think about it? Right? In the wood, there's the conserved energy of the sun, because the plants 
grew by the energy of the sun. The reason you can set wood on fire is that it has the sun within it. The reason that hearing about Krishna can eventually wake up the soul is that we are within the body. Our, our love of Krishna is inherent in us. It's already there. But we can take a concentrated form of sunshine. Right? The cow is eating the grass that's coming from the sun and the cow is transforming the grass into milk which is concentrated and the fat is even more concentrated. And then when you make ghee, you remove all the water and the protein from the fat. So it's pure fat. And of course, any kind of oil. You can go to a plant, just like we're trying to make the fire in wood, but you can go to the plant and from many plants you can extract oil. We extract olive oil, extract cottonseed oil. What, what, are you, what are we doing? What is this oil from? Or, you know, uh, fossil fuels is, of course, also from plants. It's this concentrated energy of the sun. And so when you pour oil, when you pour ghee, or, you know, they have these fire starter cubes you can buy, which are basically just uh, pieces of wood, wood sawdust or something that's saturated with some kind of oil. And when you add that, you can get a sustained flame. So when these sparks come, when there was a little bit, the soul wakes up and goes, oh, that's, that's the real me. That's what I really want. See, that's a little different from like materially, you know, I argue with a, a loved one and then they go, oh, I didn't want to argue with him. But what I really want is still bewildered. I'm thinking what I really want is a nice relationship with them where I can where they can satisfy my senses and mind. But that's not what I really want either. Or, you know, I eat the second piece of cake and go, oh, that wasn't what I really wanted, now my stomach hurts. But what did I really want? I think what I, what I really want is to have a healthy body or a thin body. Or, but that's also an illusion. So with the soul, seeing not just, I didn't really want to eat that second piece of cake or I didn't really want to say nasty things to this person or I didn't really want to wake up until late or whatever because it's not fulfilling my material desires what starts to wake up is I don't really want material desires at all I don't want the so-called bad material desires and I don't want the so-called good material desires I don't want material desires what I want is something completely different and whether my material things are in goodness, passion, or ignorance, whether they're so-called nice in the estimation of the world, I don't really want them either. I want something transcendent. And at that point, one has to pour ghee. One really has to nourish it. Not just that the realization comes and I go, oh, that was a cool realization. Wow! And then I close the curtains again. Then there's just a spark that fizzles. And a person can go on for decades in spiritual life with just this fizzling spark. But to really pour ghee means we go deeper and deeper into our hearing in good association and we allow, we, we let go of the resistance. We let go of the resistance to the resistance. <laughs> we allow, we embrace the inner process of purification. We let the hearing change not only our actions, but also change our intentions. So that on all levels, we're on a path to reality. And then the fire blazes, Krishna tells Uddhava. It burns up the very wood. So this fire of hearing and purifying our desires, it burns up the subtle body. So that we are no longer, as Prabhupada says in the third canto, there's no question of using the mind at this point. There's no more, it's not the mind anymore. Whereas Krishna says, for one who has conquered the mind, the super soul is already reached, for he has attained tranquility. At that point, we're directly in touch with the Lord's spiritual energy. So the hearing process, which at first was so materially uh, contaminated and so materially covered, it ends up revealing the original hearing process of the soul. And all the followers of the Vedas, it doesn't matter whether they're Vaishnavas or Shaivites or, or Shaktas or in what 
branch of Vaishnavism they are, or a sub-branch, or sub-sub-branch, or twig, or whatever. There is complete agreement on this point that perfection means simply removing what is false and revealing what is real. You know, you get an old piece of silver that's really tarnished. I was at a devotee's house about a week ago, and she asked me to take care of the silver for her deities, and wow, it was black. And I was rubbing with that silver polish for a very long time. And you know, you get more and more and more off, and then pretty soon there's no more black. It's all just silver. So the hearing process then becomes the original nature of the soul. And what's interesting, of course, is that it's a dynamic process, not in the perfect realm of Vaikuntha, one is always hearing and chanting about the Lord. And one's love for the Lord, one's desires to the Lord are always increasing and increasing and increasing and increasing and and increasing. So this is the essence, this hearing. I mean, of course, it's, it's fascinating. We can identify the essence of bhakti yoga practice, the essence of the bhakti yoga sadhana in different ways we can say the essence of the bhakti yoga process is chanting. But how are you going to chant if you haven't heard? The beginning has to be hearing. We can also say that the essence of the bhakti yoga process is sadhu sangha. And in fact, the essence of the bhakti yoga process is much more sadhu sangha than it is hearing. Because without sadhu sangha, there's no hearing. And hearing can be, again, on a very subtle level within oneself, just by being in the association, sadhu-sangha, sadhu-sangha, uh, sarva-shastra-koi, lava-matra-sadhu-sangha, sarva-siddhi-hoi, just by having an eleventh of a second association with a sadhu. It changes one's inner thoughts. It changes one's hearing, even if apparently no sound has been uttered. Ultimately, sound is vibration. Therefore, Prabhupada says, the whole world is full of Krishna's singing. And those who are sadhus, every, uh, we say their body is not material. They have a physical body in the sense that their physical body uh, ages. Their physical body can have a broken bone. Their physical body dies and so forth. But their body is, although it's physical, it's not material. It's like an iron rod in the fire. And and part of what we mean by that is that the vibration of their body is the glorification of God. Like Garuda's wings are emitting the Samaveda. So a a sadhu, just by their presence, is is chanting, is giving out a, a vibration of love. And being in touch with them even for an eleventh of a second, causes us to hear something that can change our path and our intention. What to speak of if we literally do hear on the gross level, on the, on the obvious level. Like Srila Prabhupada said, his own spiritual master was particularly pleased that he would hear. That it, Other people in the meeting, they went on on a parikrama, but Srila Prabhupada stayed to hear. And to hear with the intention of transformation. Not to hear with the intention of let me hear so that I can justify my material attachments and cover them with a veneer of religion. That kind of hearing doesn't change our intentions. And if we have, and it doesn't really change our actions on a deep level, it, it and it can make us a very conflicted person. Where we have these, this desire for spiritual life, but we're not willing to let go of our anartas. You know, the person who wants to clean their house, but they don't want to throw anything away. Have you ever done that? You're, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean out my stuff. I'm going to straighten out my stuff. I'm going to get rid of things. And you start going, oh, I don't want to get rid of this. Why well, don't I gonna get rid of that? And, you know, it ends up that your throwaway or giveaway pile could fit into a thimble. 
but to really be willing to change our intentions, to be willing to throw away whatever is false, whatever is hurting us. So that's the essence of the thing. You know, we have so many scriptures, we have so many sadhus, we have so many classes, we have so many actions. But the essence of the thing is to change what we're contemplating, to change what we're absorbing ourselves in, to change our intention, to change what destination we really want. And this is what we, what we hear, what we hear from others, what we hear in our own mind, what we latch onto. That's what we want to believe is what's right, which then becomes who and what we are. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions, chastisements... Whatever you talked a lot about hearing with a, a genuine intention to change. Um, I guess it's been my experience that from the very beginning we hear and that desire to change is practically nil. But it's like a during. It's like a gra- very gradual process to yes. where, yes. where eventually, if it, very eventually, that, that earnest desire to really change, it, it, it seems to take a lot of time. And yes. that's sort of the process that we're going through. Yes, exactly. I mean, in Prabhupada, you know, how long that takes depends on, on us. Mahalach, we need to mute. How long that takes depends on us. I mean, it's Mahalash, we need to mute. It's a. I can be more serious or less. But yes, it, generally, most of the time, it's gradual. As I embrace the desire to change, and I see the result of that is very blissful, then I'm much more willing to embrace that desire as, as time goes on. Well said. You know, that, that's yeah. basically what it is. I mean, I remember, um, actually it was Hari K. Swami, he was giving a class, and he said, I don't know, those of you who've been born in Hawaii won't relate to this, but if you want to go ice skating in the winter on a lake, so, you know, you're not sure. It's not like an ice skating rink where they've tested it. You know, it's a, it's a lake, and you don't want to fall through the ice. So you test the, you know, maybe you throw some rocks on the water and see whether or not the ice breaks and you test from the shore and you, you know, you test further and further and further in and if it keeps holding then eventually you skate all over the lake so it's like that you know, I I test first, usually it's with a very little thing that I'm willing to really change and I'm willing to really let go of and I'm willing to really be a spiritual person and letting go of that little thing, which may at the time appear to me as a huge thing. At the time it may think, wow, this is a huge anarta I've gotten rid of. <laughs> um, and again, we find that, that we're okay. Not only are we okay, we're lighter, we're freer, we're happier. And, I mean, there's there's even uh, materialistic, you know, satvagun techniques like that well if you hold on to this thought how do you feel well I feel angry I feel upset I feel you know etc etc alright let's try letting go of that thought how do you feel oh wow I feel peaceful I feel free I feel happy so what do you want to do do you want to hold on to the thought or do you want to let go of the thought so it's you know it's like that with food Eat this food, how do you feel? Oh, I feel tired, I feel lethargic. Eat this food, how do you feel? I feel energized, I feel light. You know, so what to speak of, if that's true just with the modes, what's what to speak of with spiritual life? We surrender somewhat and we're like, wow. <laughs> and then that gives us faith. But for most, but most spiritual aspirants, we do end up at places where we really don't want to surrender. You know, we come to things that's like, okay, I surrendered this and that and the other thing. But this one, uh, I don't think so. 
and then we, we get blocked and we get very conflicted. So, hold about you a moment. So you're, you're sizing down there? You're getting rid of some things? Yeah. And not getting, and not means you're getting, well, but you're getting rid of things that are restricting you, actually. It appears to be a sizing mm-hmm. down, but it's not. I mean, imagine if, um, I don't know if they still do that, I assume they still do this, but very violent people who are mentally ill, they would put them in a straitjacket. I assume that has still, is still done. You know, it's done even with uh, ordinary criminals where they handcuff them behind their back. Right? It's, it's the main, and if they're even more violent, they also put ankle shackles on them. So, if you say, well, I'm getting rid of my handcuffs and ankle shackles, I'm getting rid of my straitjacket, are you downsizing? It appears that way. It appears I'm getting rid of something. But I'm really not. I'm, what I'm really doing is I'm opening up freedom. I, what I'm getting rid of, I'm getting rid of things that were restricting me. So, right. so it, so it looks like that. strategies for that. Do you have strategies for that? Because I, I am a pack rat, and <laughs> I have a lot of things that I don't need, and I, I did never get around to you know getting rid of them. I don't even throw away emails. It's just ridiculous. You well, know, well, you're just all bogged. I mean, I'm sure that there are even mundane um, things one can do about hoarding that hoarding is basically Tamagoon. So there's, you know, even if you just go up to Rajagoon, that would help. Uh, and I'm sure that there's out there in the mundane world ways to go from Tamagoon to Rajagoon in terms of, of hoarding. Because hoarding is basically fear. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a desire for security. So if you can find some security in another way, you know, that's that's basically what it is. And then in Satvagun, you're finding security in your faith that the world is is meant to be prosperous and providing and that we're always taken care of. Yogic Shema Vaham Yaham. Near Yogic Shema Atmavam. Don't be concerned with gain and safety, but be fixed in the self. You know, so that's Satvagun or Bhakti. So it's basically addressing, you know, finding my security in another way. I mean, it's... Like just traveling here to Hawaii, I'm coming to Hawaii, then I'm going to California, then I'm going to go back to North Carolina. But I brought with me, I brought my world traveling suitcase with me. I mean, basically, it's always packed. I only ever unpack a few things from it at a time. And in my world traveling suitcase, there's electrical adapters for different kinds of plugs in different parts of the world. And when I was getting ready to go, I thought, I don't need to bring this for travel within the United States. I could leave it in North Carolina. I don't need to have it in my suitcase. And I thought, well, A, it doesn't take up much room. B, they don't care about the weight of your carry-on in the United States. And C, I've had experience as a traveler that sometimes you think you know where you're going, but Krishna has another plan. And I thought, you know, <laughs> I've had that experience so many times. And so I tend to just travel with basically everything that I need. But on the other hand, there's Narada Muni who only travels with his Veena. There's Sukadev Goswami who doesn't even travel with his clothes. You know, I mean, Mahaprabhu had four sets of clothes when he went in South India. I travel with three. Um, but Sukadev Goswami didn't travel with any. Rishabhdev didn't travel with any. I mean, but Mahaprabhu did. Mahaprabhu traveled with four sets of clothes and he had also a servant who carried his stuff so he could just, you know, use his fingers for chanting. And even most of the sannyasis carry at least a kamandalu so they can carry fresh water with him. So, you know, if we say, well, I have my full sense of security in the Lord, does that mean that I'm just going to be sky-clad? I'm going to be, you know, Sukadeva Goswami without clothes, without even a kamandalu? Uh, probably not. I don't think that that's what we're intended to do as preachers. So having some, you know, having three sets of clothes. I mean, I, I know one sannyasi in Iskan who used to travel with only the clothes he was wearing and a couple chudders. 
and he would wear silk clothes, just wash them once every three days. And while they were washing, he'd have to be wrapped up in his cheddar. But eventually he came to understand that doing this was a disturbance to other people because other people had to wash and dry his clothes very quickly <laughs> so he would have something to wear. And so he started bringing a second set of clothes. So it may be at a practical level that we need to bring, have some stuff with us and, you know, that we have a backup of some things, that we have a second of some things. Like I also travel with my previous pair of glasses, which isn't exactly my current prescription, but I'd be able to see out of them reasonably. You know, so in one sense, keeping anything like that, it can be and often is a result of our tamagun that I have to arrange for my own pr- protection and I have to, you know, I don't, I want to make sure I have everything and I want to make sure I have backups of everything and second and third and and it is true that sometimes we delete an email and we're like, oh, I wish I hadn't deleted it. And it is true that sometimes we give away something. Happened to me actually a few weeks ago. I gave away something. And then later I thought, you know, I really could have used that. <laughs> I gave it away. It does happen. It does happen. But ultimately our faith is in the Lord and in the Lord's protection and the Lord taking care of what we need. And He gives us what we need. And to, to really cultivate that that faith that Krishna is giving me what I need. I don't need to hold on to everything. I can't hold on to everything anyway. Everything's taken away eventually. And I really like what Bali Maharaj says to Sukracharya, why not give to the Lord willingly now what's going to be taken away at death anyway? So in many cases that's going to be a physical thing and in many cases it's going to be a mental attachment to enjoying something, including relationships, including buildings. Krishna says, one who's not attached to any residence is dear to me. So, at least on the internal... I've also also had a Tiag side. I mean, I could leave within a very short time to India and not even miss anything. Uh, I've spent years of my life where everything fits into a backpack. So... It's just odd that I have this problem. Anyway. Um, well, you know what? The other, the other thing with Dagdamadava is that I am learning to do is to be kind to myself with my problems. Mm-hmm. You know, I find that I can be kinder often to other people with their problems than to me with my problems that I can look at other people and say, hey, this is a sincere devotee, this is a sincere Vaishnava, and they have, you know, XYZ attachment, or XYZ, depending on where you are in the world. And, you know, it'll go away. It'll go away. Whether it goes away today, whether it goes away next week, whether it goes away next lifetime, it will go away. They'll get there. Mm. And to just encouraging that hearing process, the wood will burn up on its own. It really will, if you just keep going. And to be kind to myself as well. You know, hey, it's Kali Yuga. I have a human life. And this this time around, I'm a human being in Kali Yuga. I'm not a demigod. (laughs) I'm not a rishi. I'm not a prajapati. I'm not a, you know, I'm just a human being in Kali Yuga. I'm going to have problems. That's what human beings in Kali Yuga have. They have problems. I am. And Krishna loves me. Krishna cares about me. I was just reading, just just reading yesterday, where Prabhupada says we should be cooperating with the desire of the Lord for us to go back to Godhead. He wants me. Prabhupada says much more than I want him. And you know, if I just keep going, all that stuff will be taken care of. I know it will. So many things in the past that I thought I would never get rid of, or I would never advance in this way or that way, they're they're taken care of. So many things. You know, so many of my big problems 30 years ago, are they're, they don't even exist anymore. So the things right now that I might think, I have this big problem. Eh. Maybe not give it so much attention. Focus on, on my, um, my spiritual life, focus on my chanting, focus on my hearing, focus on my sadhu sangha. And trust that it'll be taken care of. 
and there'll be a time I'll look back and say, "Wow, I, I used to have a problem with that. How interesting!" <laughs> I really like your positive message. You know, to be uh, just to, to be persistent um, seems to be your message. Just to keep keep going, and it'll be all right, kind of thing. Wondering Krishna consciousness and Sadhusanga. Yes, it works. My experience is that it works. That's my experience with myself. That's my experience with other devotees. It works. The only time I see that it doesn't work is when we are resisting the very process we are engaged in. And we're resisting it actively. You know, where, we're, where it is time to let go of something. Some things it's not time to let go of them yet. Krishna's like, okay, you can keep that particular problem right now. Just don't worry about it. Just like we would say to somebody else. We might say, look, that's it, so important right now. Just, just leave it. I guess we're all we're all hoarders in a sense, uh, you know, in this material world. Yes, exactly, exactly. But when it comes time to let go of something, Krishna makes it very clear. You know, he'll make it clear internally. Our friends and and relatives and well wishers will say, "Hey, this is a problem." It'll scream at us from the purports. It'll scream at us from classes. This is a problem. And at that time, if we don't let go of it, we end up conflicted and we end up stymied. That, that's a real sorrow. That's a real sorrow when, when we see people like that. They're stuck at a point where they, they really do need to go forward in a certain way. And they're fighting it like anything. But, you know, the time will come for each of those things. So there'll be a time when Krishna will deal with this or that attachment and say, okay, we're dealing with it now. But for Jagdamadav, I think you can just, if you go to that, hey, I, I can do this. I can travel the world with a backpack fearlessly. I'm capable of that. I'm completely capable of that. Maybe even, you know, meditate on how you felt traveling the world with a backpack. How did you feel? Were you always fearful that you were, didn't have enough stuff? So if you... you no. no. Then you know what? No, no. I, okay. I, it's just odd. It's just odd. It seems like a, a rolling stone gathers no moss. So if you're traveling, you're, you're, you have to go light. But oh. if you're in one place, you tend to accumulate. Okay. You know what, Dr. Madhava? Can I, can I... Do I have your permission to smash that? Go ahead. Okay, you brought this up as something you'd like to deal with, but I've only smashed this with your permission. I know a lot of people who don't travel light. Traveling does not equal travel light. You know, I was a world traveler for 14 years. I ran into a lot of other world traveling preachers. Some of them traveled with three huge, heavy check-in suitcases that they were, you know, paying for, either by paying business class or they were paying for the extra suitcases. Those things had to be put in somebody's trunk where they wouldn't fit, tied to the top of the car, lugged up and down stairs. I saw one person who traveled with a huge heavy altar for his deities, complete with fancy lighting equipment and backup batteries. So, no, traveling does not necessarily push people to travel light. You travel light because you are capable of it. You are capable of it. And if you can access that mentality you had as a light-traveling traveler, and then you just apply it in your current situation. You already have it within you. It's actually something you already know how to do. It's something that, it's already within you. It's already your capability. It's not an overall life problem. It's just taking what you can do already in one circumstance and applying it to another circumstance. So when you find somebody who has something they're struggling with that they already know how to deal with in another circumstance, then dealing with it is fairly easy. If you find someone who has a problem across the board, it's much harder. But any circumstance where you got it gives you a template. But you want to access it emotionally, not intellectually. How do you feel in emotionally with the one backpack? And then you just look around and go, huh, would I carry this in my backpack? Would I carry this in my backpack? And you'll be able probably to get rid of, you know, you can hoard a few things, it's all right. But if you can get rid of the 90% of the stuff that you don't really need, and you can pacify your mind with the other 
well, look, don't worry, mind. We're holding on to these few things. <laughs> the mind will go, okay, okay. All right, I do need to get going. Thank you very much. I will not be giving class next week. Um, next week I'll be in California in a different circumstance, and I, I, so I will skip a week. And then, Krishna willing, the week after that, I'll be giving class again, but from North Carolina. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you for your excellent class. Shiva Prabhupada, Ki Jai. Goodbye.